Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. I'm your host, Zach Geist. This show is made possible by Student Loan Tutor, which you can find at studentloantutor.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment and give us a review. Thank you. So how did you learn all of this stuff, Jim? Uh, One piece at a time. Um, I think probably initially, the, the, the initial sources were probably online forums and books. Um, but as you go along and you start finding yourself spending a lot more time helping other people mm-hmm. rather than trying to help yourself, you have to learn a lot more than you needed to know for your financial situation. For example, I never really had student loans. I owed about five grand to the state of Alaska for my freshman year in college. And, uh, and then the military paid for medical school. Other than that, I worked my way through. Um, and so in order to help other people, I had to learn all about student loans. Um, that wasn't something that I knew from personal experience because I didn't deal with it. I never enrolled in an IDR program. I never enrolled in public service loan forgiveness. This was all stuff I had to learn academically in order to answer other people's questions. And so, you know, a lot of it, I just had to learn as I went along, you know, whether they're tax questions or student loan questions or investing questions, just things that, uh, you know, applied in other people's lives and not so much in my own. So, um, but mostly it was all self-taught, you know, there's not really any course out there that teaches you all this stuff, at least not in medical school or residency. And so you either didn't learn it or you paid somebody else to do it for you, or you went out and learned it yourself. So Jim, when you, uh, you obviously have an interest in finance, be starting white coat investor, uh, in addition to being a practicing medical doctor and an emergency room MD, uh, where did that interest spawn from? Is this something that started as a child? Did you start a business really young where you're were your parents into business? No, actually I had no interest at all in this. As an undergraduate, I was a molecular biology major. In medical school, I was focused entirely on medicine and I went to residency. And, uh, you know, the first few months you start getting paychecks, your first real paycheck in your life. I think I was making 37,000 a year as a resident. Hmm. And um, you to be in an IDR, by the way. What's that? A great time to be in an income-driven repayment and not in forbearance or deferment. Exactly. But uh, at any rate, I was, you know, starting to make money and I felt like I should be doing something smart with it. And I think one of my co-residents referred me to a financial advisor that was not a financial advisor. It was a commissioned salesman masquerading as a financial advisor. And, um, you know, after that ended up ending badly, as it usually does, I decided if I don't start learning this stuff on my own, I'm just going to keep getting taken advantage of over and over again. So I poured myself into books. I poured myself into participating on online forums. And after a few years of doing that, I realized I was doing a lot more teaching than learning. And so that's kind of where it took off. After a few more years, I, I realized nobody's teaching this to doctors. And there's really a niche wide open there for me and decided to start the white coat investor. But that's where it all came from. It didn't start out as a childhood dream by any means. I was, I was halfway through residency before I even took an interest in it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and really, you know, I was five years out of residency before I started teaching it to other people. Fascinating. Yeah. My, uh, my story also is somewhat similar in the degree that it isn't related to being in this position myself. My passion for empowering people with finance and doing this and helping people with student loans and why I'm drawn to have read your book, your old, granted it's an old version of it, and reaching out to speak with you today is to create that empowerment because I too ran into this similar problem. I grew up My family was not wealthy whatsoever. Actually, I was a ward of the state of California for some time, uh, which is extremely challenging. (laughs) And uh, I became successful because I was very good. I was very tenacious. People thought I was a good, you know, businessman or a salesman. I think I just outworked everybody. And I took a lot of risks and learned that way. And in some of those risks came around when I was making uh, what I made. You talked about becoming having a million dollars being a millionaire at at 38, I believe, and your wife was 35, if I recall correctly. And I had the fortune and misfortune, I guess, of, but it's a fortunate thing because I learned a lot from it. I was a millionaire at 26, making seven figures a year by 27. And somehow you would think at this point in time, I'd be sitting on my yacht at this point, um, being almost 40. Uh, However, uh, people come in that 
masquerade as, as, uh, you know, asset protection and, you know, uh, uh, investment advisors. And needless to say, I invested in a whole bunch of different businesses, uh, real estate that was, you know, uh, the buildings had gotten torn down afterwards. I lost everything I made for like the next 10 years because I never, I, I guess the success came too quickly and I didn't know how to even access the proper advisors. This is what, like when the internet was new and forums were new and there were no such thing as podcasts. There was no industry for that. So essentially it was like, I felt like how people depict what happened to Mike Tyson. He became really successful and he had no idea he was even supposed to pay taxes. So, uh, yeah, I feel, I think I feel that pain and why I get drawn to that. Yeah. It's amazing how much better you can do if when the money hits, your hands are prepared to receive it. You know, if you've got that financial literacy, if you've got that financial discipline and then your income goes up, then you know what to do with it and you hit the ground running and all of a sudden you're building all kinds of wealth. But if you don't really know what you're doing and like most docs, you come out of residency and all of a sudden, instead of making three or $4,000 a month, you're making 20 or $30,000 a month. And all of a sudden you don't know what to do with it. And so if you're lucky, it just stacks up in your checking account and doesn't make anything. And if you're unlucky, you blow it on a big fat doctor house and a couple of Teslas. Uh, yeah, just, maybe a business that, uh, that somebody knows that started and you're, you invest in that business with the chance of a huge return or the next big idea. Uh, yeah, it's fast. Have you read that book, Thinking Fast and Slow? I have. That's, yeah. That's, that's, uh, is that the Kahneman one? Kahneman book, yeah. Mm-hmm. I really like the part where he talked about how, how do you judge a good investment? And, uh, and they would ask people that should, should, have the, should know the answer to that. And oftentimes they would say, well, you know, I went to this thing and I saw this car that I, you know, really the Ford's making these beautiful cars. That's why I invested. It made total sense. But if you look at what makes a good investor is that they know when something's undervalued or they know what the return's going to be. It's not necessarily what the best product is. Uh, And when it comes to student loans, I I feel that this is the same way. People are so focused on interest rate uh, and they don't, I mean, that's a, that's an element, but it's just one element. Uh, and rate of return is another thing that people focus on. And I like that you talk about it in the book, but what fees are you paying for that rate of return? And when are those p- fees paid? Because if you understand how interest accrues, both in your favor and to your detriment against you in the, in the form of uh, personal debt, credit card debt, student loan debt, mortgage debt, then you could actually be understanding the rules of the game and playing it correctly. I don't know if you want to touch, that's a real broad thing if you want to touch on what I said there. Sure. I mean, obviously learning the rules makes it a lot easier to win the game, whether those rules are the tax code or those rules are the you know rules behind the federal student loan programs, or if the rules are just the principles of investing, you know, if you don't learn them, you're, you're not going to do very well in the game. And you don't realize that there are other players in the game who've read the rules, who know the rules that are, you know, going to take advantage of those rules, sometimes to your detriment. Yeah, often uh, ignorance is a hefty price to pay. I wrote some questions down for discussion points that I want to, because I could jump all over the place with these things. Yeah, I think I wanted to touch on, for our clients, most of our clients are self-employed. I would say out of any profession, most of them are chiropractors. Uh, They have a considerable amount of student loan debt, basically the same, pretty close to the same as, as an MD. Uh, without the benefit of public service student loan forgiveness at huge interest rates. Most of all, all grad loans since 2010 are unsubsidized. So those things are accruing and ballooning for them. Uh, what would you, what advice would you give somebody that doesn't have those huge $30,000 a month uh, uh, income coming in, but they have age to their advantage. They're young. Uh, they might be in their late twenties or early thirties, but they may only make, 65 grand a year and their student loan, if they just pay their interest alone on their student loans is $26,000 a year. Uh, what, what would you, what would you advise them to do in that well, situation? 
Well, see, this is a situation that some physicians are in, but not a lot. And the reason why is because physician incomes are generally higher. And so your debt to income ratio works out better. You know, even if you look at kind of the bottom of the totem pole, as far as medical school graduates go, we're talking about pediatricians and family practice docs. They might be making 160, 180, $200,000 a year. And the average graduating medical student is carrying $200,000. And so that's a one X ratio, basically. Mm -hmm. That's very doable. You can pay that back. If you'll live like a resident for two or three or four years, you can pay that off. It's not that big a deal, right? Yes, you might come out a little bit ahead going for public service loan forgiveness if you're an academic, but at the end of the day, you can afford the debt. It was a good investment to borrow that much money to have that sort of an income. Now, if you are a pediatrician and you borrow $600,000, that's a different story. That was not a good investment. That was a mistake to borrow that much money for a job that pays you $160,000 or $180,000 a year. And so I think a lot of other professionals find themselves basically in that scenario. The they same, totally do. The same scenario of a pediatrician who borrowed $600,000. Now, maybe it's a chiropractor that's making sixty dollars and borrowed two hundred, dollars mm -hmm. but in reality, the ratios are the same. And when you get to that sort of a ratio, I think the first thing you got to do is you got to admit you made a bad business decision. Maybe it's your dream. Maybe it was your dream to be a chiropractor or a veterinarian or whatever it was. But as a business decision, that wasn't so wise. And you're kind of limited in your options from there. For example, if you don't, if your profession doesn't qualify for public service loan forgiveness because you are not doing anything for a 501c3 or for a federal employer, et cetera, then you got to start looking at some of these other forgiveness programs, the IDR forgiveness programs, the most attractive of which is probably under pay as you earn because you can hit it after just 20 years of payments. And which is fascinating. Here's a fascinating thing, Jim, and I'm popping in because that is right. And there's fine print with pay as you earn. I don't know if you're aware of this. This is a very, very common understanding. And if you have one single grad loan, any one, just one, it doesn't have to be in a consolidation. If you, as the borrower, have one grad loan, pay as you earn is a 25-year forgiveness window. Instead That's interesting. You can't get that for your undergrad. I thought it was 20 years for undergrad and, and uh, 25 for... It, it uh, bumps them all graduate. to 25. That's interesting. Yeah, but and, even so, if you're if you're facing one of those terrible debt to income ratios, you know, 3x, 4x or more, that still becomes an attractive proposition. There's an orthodontist here in the Utah area. I don't know if you saw this article in the Wall Street Journal about 6 months ago, but this is an orthodontist who graduated from Brigham Young. He then went to USC for dental school and for dental residency. Now, an orthodontics residency you're paying tuition. You're not being paid like you are in a medical residency. So oh, by the time, yeah. by the time he got out, you know, living in Southern California with his young family and paying all this tuition, all on debt, I think he owed six or seven hundred thousand. And then he let it ride for a few years. Woo! So the headline in this Wall Street Journal article was like 1.1 million. That's what he owes in student loans. And his plan is to go for an IDR forgiveness. He's going to make these payments for 25 years. And then he's basically saving up on the side for the tax bomb that he's going to have because that forgiveness, of course, is taxable. It's not like public service loan forgiveness. But because he, his income is so low for an orthodontist, he's only making like two hundred dollars or $250,000 that these payments are tiny compared to his debt. It's still growing. And so I think the amount that he was expecting to have forgiven at 25 years was over $2 million. Yeah, what he wants to take a look at is there's an element, there's a subsidy within revised pay as you earn where it's possible to have 50% of any of the negatively amortized interest fall off every single year. If you end up paying it off in full, the interest returns. But if you don't, provided you never miss a research, then that interest never accrues. It essentially stays and accrues almost in a separate bucket. There's another fascinating thing about IDRs. I think maybe some of your, uh, your followers could gain a lot from this, is that aside from ICR, which is income contingent repayment, so the other, well, income contingent and income sensitive uh, repayment, so aside from those, the other four, 
uh, qualify, qual they don't capitalize interest. So interest doesn't capitalize provided you're an active repayment. So you could have negative amortizing interest and it's not going to accrue interest on itself unless, unless you miss a recertification or switch plans, at which point all of that interest that was accruing now capitalizes and becomes part of the principal. I could tell you a nightmare story actually of an attorney who actually works in consumer loan law and actually works with student loans. And they submitted their IDR request because you have to do that every single year. And it was when IBR was, was the most recent plan and then uh, revised pay as you earn and IBR for new borrowers and pay as you earn all started to release out. Revised pay as you earn being the newest one that's really complicated, but it's the newest plan. Came out uh, December of 2015, I believe. Yeah, it was right at the end of 2015. But what ended up happening is the paperwork changed. So he sent in old paperwork, did it manually, and they didn't approve the paperwork. And they sent him out a new, a new document that said, you know, hey, you need to resubmit, and which he did. But during that time, he missed his window. So he his loans fell out of active repayment. And he'd been in, a, he'd been in an IBR program for five years. He had something like $200,000 of debt, accruing 7% interest a year at a $0 repayment, uh, a $0 payment during that time because he was building his practice. And he, and he had an S-corp and he was paying himself dividends and a salary and he was basing his, his uh, repayment based on his salary as opposed to the dividends. So he was able to be, actually have with his family size a payment of zero. I say all this to say that what ended up happening is he had uh, something like $70,000 of interest capitalized. And then if you take the remainder of that loan term of 20 years, it's going to accrue an additional $90,000 of interest over the course of that time, all from sending in a, the wrong document. And all that has to happen is you just forget that you have a research or you submit it. With our clients, we have over a thousand active clients that we manage, Jim. And we, and we have a process by which we follow up with the servicer to verify that not only did they receive it, but that it's been implemented and that they have the correct payment. Because oftentimes you submit it, it, it shows submitted, but then nobody does anything with it. Because you got to remember where it's going. There's 45 million borrowers and they're hiring people for $10, $12 an hour in big call centers. That comes across somebody's task list. You know, they quit their job or they forget or they lose it or they get fired or whatever. And all of a sudden, somebody with $200,000, $300,000 student loan debt has all that interest capitalized because the paperwork didn't get sent in. Or, and it happens, I'd say, 15, 20% of the time. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, uh, one of the most difficult things about the federal programs is simply that you cannot call them up and get good advice. You just cannot figure out what's going on because there are these, you know, call center employees, because the programs are so complicated to start with that literally you call them up and every time you call, you get a different answer. And so it really makes it difficult for these people in these programs. It also turns out that, you know, these federal servicing companies can't count to 120. <laughs> and so you That's literally have to keep track of every payment you make because they can't count them. You think you've made 57 and you go to them and they tell you you've made 31, mm -hmm. you know, and that's tens of thousands of dollars to a physician, um, you know, in, in additional loan repayment that you'll have to make. And so. And know. most people just trust that it's being counted correctly. I remember when I was a kid, I just figured like, you know, uh, the people that are handling my taxes, they're just going to just do that. You know, they're going to just do it correctly and they've got it all figured out. And they're going to call me if I've done something wrong and, and tell me. And it's just simply with circle with loan servicers, it's simply not the case at all. And there's really and that's a big challenge, too, is what I what I'm finding, too, Jim, is that I'm finding that the reason there's not more people like me in this industry is because if I was. If, if I was doing this for, I got into this thing, but I was past the point of no return. Had I known how deep this rabbit hole was going to go, how little it paid, how difficult it is to even spread what you do. Because the minute you tell people you help them with student loans, the minute you say that, they go, that, that's not possible. That's a scam. There's nothing that you could do. I, I could do whatever it is that you could do through the loan servicer. And it goes, well, that's technically true if you know what to tell them to do and then how to follow up on it and how to run your numbers. But virtually nobody knows that. Or what loan types work with what and why. Uh, how interest accrues. How it's different from other debt. Uh, how to file your taxes and which way it makes the most sense. Because if you're filing joint versus filing, filing, married filing separate, you don't may, may or may not have to take the spouse's income into consideration. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting, 
it's an interesting debacle. I don't know what the solution is because, oh, I, I think I touched on the beginning of this, uh, on the beginning of this talk. My original plan was not to work through this maze of things with every single client that comes through the door, which is what we end up doing. We have a team of eight of us doing all of this at this point. And uh, we'd grow faster if we could, but the education curve, the, the amount of information you have to learn, I essentially have to teach it. There's nowhere that somebody could go to learn this information. It's not like, hey, watch these videos, take this college course, and you learn how all these repayment options. I'm digging through student loan law books, and then this isn't even correct every time. You'll submit something, and it says, well, it's supposed to work, and they're just like, no, we don't know what you're talking about. And that's one service, or the other service, or like you said, will. And uh, it's a different answer over and over again. I'd say most of our time is spent fighting servicers on what we know should be the you know our client's payment amount and that they did in fact receive the documents and that the documents according to what they require is sufficient for doing whatever it is that they're that they're saying to do uh, as well as while the process is happening making sure they're in an administrative forbearance instead of a regular forbearance because if they're in administrative forbearance then the, the the interest isn't accruing and capitalizing it essentially stops similar to a deferment on a subsidized loan but all these little things, when you have $200,000 of loans, uh, adds up. Right. right. You know, it's interesting. This is such an easier process for physicians than it is for some of these other folks. You know, it really is for a few reasons. One, a typical physician will spend a long time in residency and fellowship training. So, for example, if you spend seven years in residency and fellowship making little IDR payments, you're really only messing with your student loans as an attending for three years, you know, oh. until you get public service loan forgiveness. And even if you're not in a long training period, most physicians, their debt to income ratio is such that if they will just keep living the lifestyle they had as a resident, they can wipe out the debt in two to five years, no matter what job. And so the nice thing, if you're not going for public service loan forgiveness, is you get out of these federal programs. You know, you refinance your loans, you get a better interest rate, you pay them off in two or three or four years, and you're done. And you don't have to deal with these loan servicers. And if you're going for public service loan forgiveness, well, it's only three, four, five years after you get out of residency training. But these poor folks that got to deal with them for 25 years because they're going for pay or repay forgiveness, mm -hmm. oh, what a nightmare. Mm -hmm. You know, that's terrible to have to deal with these companies for that long. It's you know, terrible. And well, have student loans in your life that long. Yeah, you think that's bad. We have to deal with them all day, every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't envy you, not one bit. Yeah, it's an, interesting, it's an interesting thing that we got ourselves into. I was touching on it earlier, and I keep getting to it, and then I don't say it. But uh, originally, what my goal was, was to do something similar to what you were doing with investing, but educating people on student loans. And the idea was, and it kept getting more and more complicated. So I had some type of algorithm that was planned out where you would answer specific questions. Based on those questions, it would show you videos. I called it student loan tutorials. This was five years ago. And I, I actually recorded the videos. Uh, it's, a, it's a wild story. I actually went and I lived in India so that I could live on the least amount of money possible. I was doing all the R&D to develop this software. And then there was software developers there. I, did, I shot the video actually in India where I was asking every specific possible question. And then, like you said, with this book in 2014, one little change and it undid the whole mess. The whole right. ball of yarn just undid. And, and what it also started happening is one little, one little answer of a question different and it would equal a ginormous increase of what that person would pay over time by making that little subtle error. It's that, that idea of hitting a, a golf ball. Do you golf, Jim? A little bit. A little bit. You know, if you, if you, if you drive, I don't really golf. Uh, I've golfed before, but not often. If you, if you hit the ball and it's two millimeters this way or two millimeters that way, the, far, you know, the farther it's going, the more, the more difference that little tweak makes. And when people are going 25 years with interest accruing, just that subtle difference started to make a huge, a huge impact. For sure. That happens a lot, I think, with small changes. So our goal, Jim, is to figure out how can we minimize what people pay for their total student loan amount. For the borrowers that qualify for PSLF, how do we, how do we lower their, their, their student loan payment to the lowest possible amount? We don't care about interest capitalization. Uh, not really, at least if it looks like, if it looks like they're going to qualify, it's just a matter of, 
keep making the, making sure they get all the qualified payments they possibly can, never use deferment or forbearance, taking care of all the paperwork for them. We also track, just like you said, we actually know how to count over here. So we have in our CRM how many qualified payments they have. So we know when they've hit the 120, 120 months. Otherwise, they could just keep paying because it shows that they haven't hit that amount. Right. Um, so anyways, what I was saying is, what would you recommend somebody do when they are a self-employed borrower and they don't have that advantage of PSLF and they're going to go 20 to 25 years uh, and that loan is going to get forgiven with the tax implication, what could they do in the meantime to uh, be able to invest and have something to work with that, uh, that tax implication that's going to hit them at the end and like actually build wealth in this process without the big income? With that student loan daunting on it. I mean, I think this, there's a couple of secrets there. One, the first one is if you're truly going for forgiveness, don't pay any extra. You know, we mentioned this earlier. So many people are going for forgiveness and trying to pay off their loans. Yeah. That's not the way it works. You pick one or the other and you go for that. Yeah. Um, but basically, I mean, it comes down to, to basic personal finance and investing. You've got to carve the money out of your income and invest it. If you cannot create a difference between what you're earning and what you're spending, including those payments for student loans, there's nothing to invest. You know, it doesn't matter how you invest it if you're not putting anything into the pot. You know, if you can only save $1,000 a year, it doesn't matter if you can get yourself a 25% return on that. It's just not going to add up to much over 10 or 20 years. You've got to carve out money and actually put it away. And so you can calculate out about what your tax bill is going to be in 20 or 25 years when you get this forgiveness. And you've got to decide, you know, work back, work backward through that formula of knowing, you know, about what you're gonna earn on that and how much you're putting toward it every year. And you can figure out, you know, how much you have to save just to pay for the tax bomb on that student loan forgiveness. And it's just like any other goal, whether you're trying to save a couple million bucks for retirement, or you're trying to save $100,000 for your kid's college, you can work your way backward and figure out what you have to earn or how much you got to save each year to get to that goal. But you basically added another financial goal to your life that other people don't have. And that goal is to pay for the tax bomb in 20 years. Mm -hmm. And you've just got to work toward it. And every month, you know, if you figure it out that it, you got to invest, you know, $1,000 a month, for the next 20 years, in order to be ready to pay that tax bomb, well, that's what you've got to do. It's a payment, just like your disability insurance payment, just like your utilities payment. You just got to make it. And you make that into your investing account. You stick with your you know, long-term investing plan and you stay the course, choosing wise investments to, to meet that goal. You want to know a fascinating strategy that we discovered? What's that? Uh, is... Uh, there's people that have this huge tax bomb, kind of like this orthodontist person that you've mentioned, although he may actually still qualifying for forgiveness and paying the tax bomb might actually benefit him. But there's a, there's a loophole that exists within student loan repayment that most people, you're probably the first person I've shared this with in a recorded video. Uh, I've shared it with a couple of our clients that looks like this is going to benefit them. Generally, these are people that have deferred and forbeared, are self-employed, went through a divorce, their loans have ballooned from that over the years. They may be in their late 40s, early 50s, and they have 200, $250,000, $300,000 of student loans. Not because school was very expensive, but just from that deferment and forbearance and that capitalizing interest over time. And some of the interest rates were really crappy back then as well. So you add that into the equation, it gets really messy. But what they have is they don't have consolidated loans. So what you end up doing is you use a f you keep them in the field loans instead of moving them to direct loans, and you let that go, a plan to go for 24 years, which puts them maybe in this case at 65, which they still have relatively low income, and they don't want to have that huge tax bomb hit them, and they're able to keep their payments low, at which point you consolidate them into a direct loan and extend it another 25 years out past the time of retirement and death because it doesn't, the, 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 the burden does not attach to the estate. So it's just a different financial plan that I've never even heard mentioned before. And uh, it was, again, one of those situations, I wasn't in that situation, but we run into, when you've talked, when you've spoken to thousands and thousands of people, you go, huh, based on my understanding of the rules of the games, what would I do if I was in this person's situation and these really wild ideas come up? 
Yeah, that's a de- that's a depressing idea to think about. I mean, just to think about having student loans for 50 years. Oh, sounds terrible. I don't even want to think about it. But but surely there are some people in those terrible situations that start looking at out of the box solutions like that and they become attractive because yeah. student loans do go away at death. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Thank goodness. Cause that would be, that would be a, an insult to injury, so to speak. What's your opinion on, uh, and I know this is kind of a more of a moralistic opinion here, I guess. Uh, and, and I run into this question a lot with people is, uh, and, and people, ha- you know, borrowers have some guilt associated with the idea of even loan forgiveness at all. Actually, I was going to bring the book with me and I didn't. It's a book by an economist. I can't remember his name. I've been reading it this past week. It just came out and it's called and forgive them their debts. And it talks about the Jubilee year, about clean slate, about uh, loan forgiveness. Uh, after a certain time, if somebody can't pay, uh, essentially the loan should be wiped out so that they could have some sense of liberty and dignity uh, and not be continuously penalized for making one wrong decision financially based on limited understanding. So when you go to school, the school's not saying, hey, you know, you're going to struggle to pay this debt back, or these are what people in your profession earn. Well, this is essentially why we have bankruptcy law in the United States, right? Yeah. You you look at what used to happen when you owed money and you weren't, you couldn't pay it. You went to prison. You know, you went to debtor's prison until your family and friends, you know, basically did an old fashioned GoFundMe, came up with the money and paid paid it off to get you out of jail. You know, that's the way it used to be. And so we came up with these bankruptcy laws, you know, in modern societies that enabled people to actually take risks with debt that contributed to the economy that, built these great corporations, you know, and so we put these things in place because they're better for society as a whole. And the problem is student loans aren't eligible to disappear in bankruptcy. So yeah. those laws don't affect student loans. You still got them after you go through bankruptcy. And they, and they don't directly come out and say that they don't get discharged in bankruptcy. Uh, yeah. They say you could, you can discharge them if you could prove undue hardship. Right. But exactly. Because these programs exist, they say it's $22 a month. Can you afford that? Well, then the loan stays and there's a forgiveness window on the end. So somehow that's a loophole. Uh, to where the loan doesn't have to go away, but the rest of your debt does. So that that loan follows you still. Yeah, but here here's the other issue you got to think about. Anytime you're talking about a jubilee or or a general forgiveness, that sort of a thing, is it's not like that's free, right? There's someone on the other end that owns that debt as an investment. <laughs> yeah. So and so they're, and they're getting screwed. In the case of the federal student loan, you know, federal student loans, it's the taxpayer. The taxpayer is getting hosed, you know, in, in a private loan situation, it's the company or the investor if it's been bundled up and securitized, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's not like this is a free thing you can do without hurting other people. And if this starts happening, that investors aren't getting the money they expected to get, well, what do they do? Well, they stop loaning money or they loan it at higher interest rates. It's not like there's no consequences here. Mm-hmm. And so I think we got to remember that there's always two sides to any sort of a debt. You know, there's the person loaning the money and the person that borrowed the money. And yeah, so, the debtor and the creditor both yeah, exist in the, in with, the, in with, the game. Without getting, the, yeah, without getting into morality of whether yeah. you should pay your debts or not, you got to realize that there are, are system-wide consequences to any sort of a program like that. If you knew that every 50 years, all debts were going to be forgiven, well, interest rates would get a lot higher as you got closer to the Jubilee year. Mm-hmm. No, it's not like it, it's just some freebie you can add in there and everybody's happy about it because those people loaning the money are not happy about it. Yeah, yeah, clearly. I like the chapter in your book where you're talking about hired help. And I like that because oftentimes I get told by entrepreneurs that we dramatically undercharge because I charge a fee for service instead of a percentage of savings or just some complicated plan that I come up with off the top of my head. I, I, I create an average hourly amount for what we bill, and we bill that to anyone in that particular situation. Sometimes it co- happens more quickly. Sometimes it happens, it takes longer. And if it happens to take longer for too long of a period of time, well, then I obviously increase my prices. But we've been a fee-for-service business ever since the start. Uh, but most industries in the financial world are not, they might be not a fee for service. So it's hard to figure out where they're making their money from, which is usually not a good sign for the person on the paying side of that, or it's a fee for service and some type of commission. 
Uh, do you want to talk about hiring advisors, how you go about it, or how you recommend somebody hire an advisor? Sure. I think this is one of those things you got to be pretty careful about. And the reason why is you can end up paying a lot more than you thought you were going to pay. But the biggest problem with hiring advisors is getting bad advice. You know, there's no price low enough that getting bad advice is worthwhile. And so part of the issue with the commissioned sales model of providing financial advice is you just don't get good advice. Mm -hmm. You know, the people providing advice under that model for the most part do not have the training you want them to have. They are not providing good advice. And part of it is just that, you know, all their training is, is in sales. So they just don't know the right answers, which quite honestly is, is unfortunate, but kind of an expected outcome. The bigger problem is the conflict of interest. If you want to sell a crummy product, you got to put a big commission on it. And so if you are making your money by getting commissions, you're going to look for those products with the biggest commissions to sell, which are the crummiest products. And so you have this terrible financial conflict of interest to recommend the crummiest products to your clients. And so that's the problem with the commission sales model is you just get bad advice. Even the best person has a hard time, you know, resisting that conflict of interest for long. So that leaves you with the fee-only model, which is either paying as a percentage of assets under management mm -hmm. or paying an annual fee or paying an hourly rate, you know? And um, the problem with the AUM model, this asset under management model, is that in the beginning, the price isn't bad, but that's actually when you need the advice the most, you know? And so it's a pretty good deal early on. You got some tiny portfolio, you know, you got a $50,000 portfolio and you're paying 1% a year on it. Well, that's only $500. That's a great price for financial advice. But when your portfolio grows to be 5 million and you're still paying 1% on it, you're now paying $50,000 a year for advice. If I'm paying somebody $50,000 a year, they better be doing my grocery shopping, come over and washing the car, mowing the lawn. You know what I'm saying? It's a yeah. lot of money for about the same amount of service that you were once paying $500 or $5,000 for. So you have to be careful with that and do the math each year and make sure you're actually getting the value for what you're paying in a fee. And at a certain point, what most people will realize as their portfolio grows is they'd be better off just paying a flat annual fee or paying an hourly fee. Even if the hourly fee were three or 400 bucks an hour, you're better off paying that than you are paying $50,000 a year in AUM fees. And so I think you just got to pay attention to how you're paying your advisor and how much you're paying your advisor each year. You know, some advisors, particularly AUM advisors, uh, justify their fees by, hey, I'm creating all this value, right? If I created all this value for you, then how bad is it that you're paying me half of what I created? Mm -hmm. And the silliness of that argument is best displayed by comparing it to a doctor. For instance, if I intubate a patient, that is, that can't breathe without being put on a ventilator and they're on that ventilator for a few days and then they recover, right? Why would I be paid some percentage of what they generate in the rest of their life, right? I mean, I saved your life. Uh, you should give me half of what you earn for the next 30 years, right? It just doesn't make any sense. In reality, what I get paid is about $250 for that procedure. Yeah. You know, it's a flat fee. And everyone looks at that and of course, that's the fair way to charge for it. But for some reason, when it comes to financial advice, we think you should pay based on your assets under management. Can you imagine if you paid for your medical care, your dental care, your chiropractic care, based on how much you have as some percentage of your assets at home? It's just <laughs> insane, right? It's crazy to think that that's the way the industry runs, but that is the way it runs for the most part. And you really actually have to look pretty hard to find an advisor that charges an annual rate. And you do. And the reason why is because the people that charge a flat fee for service don't make as much money as these people earning these big commissions. So they're not marketers. They're people that are busy working. Uh, and that, that's the challenge that I run into is I've had people even say like, how come I've never heard of you? You should have a line like a cross state line. And I go, honestly, I'm so busy helping, helping clients. I, I'm not out there. This is, this is an attempt at marketing and I don't even feel comfortable marketing. I want to provide some type of value. So if I'm going to take up somebody's time, what value can I give that person with even that element of it? But uh, most of the marketing is gimmicky, you know, quick, fast answer. Everything is cookie cutter. It's that it goes, it goes down to that heuristic model of from thinking right. fast and slow. 
It's, oh, this is a, you know, I understand interest. It's a, it's a good return. Okay, if you compound it over time, then it's this. Okay, done. Rather than the truth of the matter is, hey, we need two hours to talk about this. Yeah. Here's your choice. Which one do you want to do? We don't know exactly what's going to happen with the market or with the government, but this is why you're diversified. This is why you have advisors. Yeah, yeah and, and even in your industry, right? The student loan advice industry. Sometimes it is really simple. You know, sometimes the answer is very easy, Yeah. you know, and then you got these other times when it, it's ridiculously complicated, you know, I mean, if you've got a doc that's coming in with federal student loans and a few private loans, and they're not planning on going for public service loan forgiveness, you know, and they're single, it's actually pretty straightforward what they should do with their loans. They yeah. should basically refinance their private loans when they come out of medical school and they should go in to repay for the other ones and refinance them when they leave residency. I mean, yeah. it's that simple. Yeah. But you add in a working spouse, you add in going for public service loan forgiveness, and now all of a sudden it's affecting how you're filing your taxes. It's affecting which retirement accounts you use. It's affecting which program you get into. And when you start making payments and when you consolidate your loans, you know, it's all very, uh, it's all very complicated, you know? Yeah. So I basically, what I tend to do is I tell people when they have a simple situation, here's what you do in the simple situations. And for everything else, go hire a guy like you. you go yeah. work, run the numbers and figure out what the best scenario is. It's even more difficult when the best scenario changes every year, you know, as their financial situation changes. So financial situation, it's multiple variables. The financial situation changes, the loan programs also change, and their life situations, whether they have children, how they earn their income, does it, it have they restructured their, their are they now self-employed? Uh, and yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a wild ride. Now you mentioned something earlier I wanted to explore just a little bit. Yeah. You mentioned somebody with an S-corp calculating their student loan payments under an IDR program based only on their salary yes. and not their distributions from that S-Corp. Now, right. that's, this is the first time I've ever heard that as any sort of a strategy. My understanding was you had to base your student loan payments off your total income, not just your salary. So you have multiple ways to reflect income with an income-driven repayment plan. One is you could use line 37 from your 1040, your adjusted gross income. The other way you could do it is based on your salary. So a paycheck stub, and it, or, or you, which would you'd be able to reflect because you don't know what your dividends are going to be because everything is done in advance, just like picking health care. You have to estimate what you're going to be earning for the next 12 months in advance. And you get to notify the servicers if your income increases significantly. So technically speaking, you could notify your servicer once you pay the disbursement, have your repayment recalculated, if that ever became a law, if they said, if it increases more than 10%, you have to notify us. Right now, it just says significantly. Again, I'm not an attorney. My business partner is, so I can't give legal advice, even if I want to. I mean, I could, but there's a consequence, obviously. What ends up happening is, right now, is you could base it on your salary. If the disbursement comes and you feel it's gone up significantly, you could notify the servicer that your income has gone up and they could recalculate your payment. But then again, you're going to pay yourself if you're self-employed your salary again that next following month and then do a recalculation again. But as it stands right now, just based on what somebody feels comfortable with or what, how they determine what a significant increase is. So what could happen is eventually that could change to where it says if it increases uh, more than 10%, you have to notify them, at which point you could have the disbursements all paid at the end of the year, recalculate, make one big payment. Actually, you don't even have to make the payment. You could wait, do a recalculation and then go back to your normal payments as they were before. It's one of those weird loopholes in the system, and there's plenty of those things. Yeah, it seems like you could move things around, at least make a difference for a matter of months. I would think year to year, it'd be pretty hard to just claim your salary if every year you're making twice that much in distributions from the S-Corp. Might well, be hard to uh, argue that with the IRS for very many years. Well, the thing is, is that it's different from the IRS and the Department of Ed. They're two different organizations. The IRS has, you know, an audit department and audits people and very strict rules where there's tax professionals that understand it. The Department of Education, these programs are relatively new. Uh, the, there's currently no, I don't know if this is, a, this is a fascinating thing. I had it written down here. I think I sent it to you. The IRS actually doesn't have an audit department. Uh, I'm sorry, not the IRS. The Department of Education does not have an audit department, probably because they don't know how they'd even audit these things. Uh, these things are new and it's like playing a new game or a new computer game at the beginning, 
you know, some people figured out some different loopholes in the rules. And then I think that the, you know, corporate infrastructure, I mean, sorry, not the corporate, the government infrastructure will continuously shift to close different loopholes or get more specific with it. And again, I think that's why it's so important every single year to see what the laws, how the laws change. So you could best take advantage of how to document your income, how to pay yourself, which programs work best for you are the same programs are the same program, like revised pay as you earn. You're not supposed to be able to, uh, even if you're married filing separate, you're not supposed to be able to not calculate your spouse's income when it comes to your discretionary income, where all the other income-driven repayment options do allow that. Yet there's a negative amortization subsidy associated with revised pay as you earn. You know, but then you've got the 20 years on the undergrad. So you might think, hey, it's 20 years. If you look it up, even if you go to the calculator, which I'm sure you've done, and that's where the 20 years came from, you could punch your loans in and it will say revised pay as you earn, you know, 20 years, even though you have grad loans. And the calculator will tell you that. You can call the servicer, they'll tell you that. But if you look at the law, it's a 25-year forgiveness window on borrowers with graduate loans. One single graduate loan corrupts the whole pile of loans. And that's how it works. It's not fair. It's just a convoluted disaster. I think I shared that with you on the Facebook is, uh, if people have the degree of understanding of how these systems work, they'll go, well, wait a second, if I just do this, this, and this, and this differently, like my whole financial picture changes. And there's just no, there's nothing that's ever been, oh, I mean, there's probably has been things that have been like this, but not in a long time. There hasn't been an area of finance that's just so discombobulated. Yeah, for sure. It is a mess. There's no doubt about it. And uh, I keep hoping they simplify it. That proposal they had a year ago sounds like it would. But the problem is, every time they simplify it, they keep all the old programs. Yeah, so the old programs. You're just adding a new program to it. Yeah. Yes, it's simpler for those going forward, but not for those already in the old programs. So. And the simpler ones are less beneficial. It's kind of like tax law. So uh, where, where I, I, uh, I have a person that I've worked with, Sandy Botkin, I interviewed him. I think I sent you the interview. He's a tax attorney. Uh, he's written a couple books on taxes and uh, works with Tony Robbins at different, different events talking about taxes, especially for self-employed people. And uh, he says, where there's a will, there's a lawyer. Or the more complicated the rules are, the more advantageous it is for those that understand the rules. The simpler the rules a lot of the things fall away. So yeah, this Fed, the Fed One Loan Program that the Trump administration proposed would be a lot simpler, but a lot less beneficial and lucrative. It would eliminate public service student loan forgiveness. Uh, it, would, it would eliminate the negative amortization subsidies that are associated with some of the plans. Uh, and I think it would make all of the loans unsubsidized, uh, which it would make it easier. But it does still leave the mess. You still have... <laughs> 45 million borrowers. And uh, I believe, I can't remember if it was anybody that had a direct loan then until 2024, 2025, I can't remember the year exactly, but for a specific period of time, anyone that had a direct loan would get to choose between Fed One loans or direct loans. And the direct loans would still qualify for public service student loan forgiveness, right. which is then creating a new nightmare of someone not knowing, choosing a Fed One loan for some reason, thinking that it qualifies, having some of their loans qualify, some of them not. And uh, yeah, we have people with multiple, they come to us and they have different loan forgiveness windows. So one percentage of their loans will get forgiven at this point, And then three years later, the other ones do, which is going to create a really bizarre tax burden when those two different years coincide. So it's like, do we wait until the end and then use a forbearance? But then now all that interest capitalizes, it becomes this really complicated. It becomes complicated when you're dealing with those long windows with big forgiveness amounts. And I'll tell you, honestly, Jim, almost nobody, almost nobody that contacts us that is going through that pathway is doing it correctly. I mean, if they are, it's like a blind squirrel. They just happen to catch the right nut. The people with the PSLF, the medical doctors that are going through that, that are single, that, you know, they're probably doing it correctly with, you know, they could read up on it and learn it and do it and do it correctly. But when you're going down this path, I don't know, you're just kind of like Linus, you know, when he's carrying around from Charlie Brown, you know, the dirt around him, but it's just interest following them. And how do, how do our viewers find your book? You have, I, I want to touch on this. You have 965 or something, five-star ratings on uh, Amazon. Did you have a lot of friends or how, how did that happen? That's like the best rating of any book I've seen on this type of topic. Well, a couple of things I did that other people don't do. First, I sold a lot of copies of that book. 
right? That's been out for five or six years and a lot of people buy it. I mean, it's still in its category. It's still a top seller. So that's number one. Um, and number two, I asked people to review it. Beautiful. You know, at the end of the book, please leave me a review. And amazing how many people do. So. Any other uh, places you could point some of our clients? We have, you know, thousands of people that are physicians of some type or another that will be emailing this to. How would they connect with you, White Coat Investor? Well, probably the best way is to just put White Coat Investor into your computer. But we've got a blog. I've got a free monthly newsletter. I've got a podcast. There's a video cast on YouTube. We have a private Facebook group. There's a White Coat Investor subreddit if you're into Reddit. We've got a forum on our website. We even give a scholarship out each year um, that you can apply for. That uh, runs each summer. And so a lot of different ways to connect with us. We try to put this information into your hands in the format in which you prefer it. So if you like podcasts, read the podcast or listen to the podcast. If you like video, we can do that. If you prefer an online course, I put together some online courses that can help you. If you just like a book, well, shoot, go to Amazon. It's an audio book. It's a Kindle book. It's a, uh, you know, it's a paperback book. And we just published our second book. This one's called The White Coat Investor's Financial Bootcamp. Just came out last month. Just came out on Kindle last week. And it'll be out as an audio book in a week or two. And so we've got all kinds of things that are out there to help you become financially literate and help you to, uh, you know, figure out this mess that, that can be our financial system. Thank you so much for listening, and please follow us to hear future episodes where we discuss topics such as alternative states of consciousness achieved through dance, intention, and shamanic practices, sacred economics, dream work, trauma healing, building community, permaculture, healthy and compassionate living and eating practices, somatic and alternative healing modalities, politics, psychology, mythology, and more. Our work is focused on the liberation of spirit, a return to the sacred, which is a constant collective inquiry. We aim both in person and on this podcast to plant and water the seeds of liberation from economic inequality, trauma, systemic conditioning, addiction, loss of soul, loss of meaning, hopelessness, helplessness, isolation, shame, nightmares, guilt, and a return to glimpses of your birthright, of dignity, joy, community, collaboration, equality, and constantly beautifying new world where you are not alone. And always, if you're ever in the Salt Lake City area, come join us for yoga, dance, or in the garden. A community of beautiful souls are here to welcome you. We gather in community Wednesday, 6 p.m. till 10 p.m. and Sunday, 11 to 3 p.m. And we have a vegan brunch or vegan dinner after every event. Our gatherings are all ages and are of no religious affiliation. We look forward to seeing you.